many people, it's the end of a very bad year. Now, obviously, especially given the events of 2020, some of the problems that we encounter are not of our own making, but some of them are. And with a new year, we have a new opportunity to make resolutions to change, to make things better. But can people ever really make fundamental changes in their lives? And if so, what kind of strategies make it possible? Well, today, that is the question that we're going to be discussing. We're going to be talking about the psychology and the philosophy of personal change. Welcome to New Ideal, the, pod the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. Today, we're going to be talking about the topic, can people change? Uh, and we'll shortly be joined by our special guest, clinical psychologist, Gina Gorlin, to discuss this. My name is Ben Baer. I'll be the host of the conversation today. Okay, so Dr. Gorlin, are you with us? Yes. Hi. Hi. Great. Hi. Thanks for joining us, Gina. So uh, I'll just uh, start by introducing you to our audience. Uh, we've had you on before, but if they haven't uh, seen you before, Dr. Gina Gorlin is a professor in the Verkauf Graduate School of Psychology at Yeshiva University. And she also has a private psychotherapy and coaching practice in New York City and online. Her research and clinical work focus on inspiring and empowering self-improvement in the face of resistance, very relevant to what we're gonna be talking about today. Uh, whether that's internal resistance due to anxiety or depression or external resistance due to illness or contrary social norms. You can learn more about her practice and her work uh, at ginagorlin.com. So thanks for joining us today, Gina. Um, obviously, the occasion of this talk is the end of a bad year, the beginning of a new year, hopefully a better one for many people. Um, there is a long-standing practice of people making New Year's resolutions to change for the better. What's, what's your, as a psychologist, what is your view of New Year's resolutions? Are you a fan of these? Do you think they're a good opportunity for personal change? Sure. So, so on the one hand, I love the spirit of the tradition. You know, I love that it represents a sense of optimism and a sense of new beginnings and seizing the opportunity to take charge of our lives. And I think the fact that we have even this concept of New Year's resolutions and that people often use this time just as a symbolic you know, way to kind of refresh and start. I think there's something really awesome about that. And I think they get a bad rep, not entirely without reason because people's experience and the cliche around New Year's resolutions is that nobody ever actually achieves them. <laughs> right now, there are a few reasons why I think that cliche exists and, and has some basis in truth. And I also think that there's some reason to be a little bit more optimistic about New Year's resolutions. In fact, we know there, there's psychological research that tells us that people actually can achieve their New Year's resolution at a pretty high you know, rate if certain conditions apply, you know, if they frame their goals in a certain way, if they plan, if they use certain strategies. So there's that, but also I think people underestimate the challenge. And you know, I think that's a big part of- Well, let's talk a little more about that challenge because I, I suspect that part of the reason, big part of the reason why uh, there's such skepticism about resolutions in particular is because there's there's skepticism about the possibility of personal change 
more generally. There are people who are just pessimistic about, you know, they'll say people never change. You, you can, you know, you're, you're a product of uh, your upbringing, your, your genetics, whatever. Uh, and in, in fact, I mean, I think everybody will admit that change is hard. Uh, and that's part of what makes it seem impossible. So why is it so hard? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, my first thought in response to what you're saying is, in some ways it's hard because people underestimate how hard it is. That I think people swing back and forth between on the one hand, expecting that change should be easy, should be natural, that once they have seen that a certain path is better for them. You know, if, if I want to cut down on carbs, if I want to quit smoking, if I want to be a better you know, orator or whatever, I can clearly see the path to doing that. I should just be able to do it. And if I can't, there's just something wrong with me. And then they might kind of swing the other way where they think, okay, well, clearly I am who I am and it's hopeless and maybe I'm not cut out for this. And so I think part of what makes it hard is that setting the right expectations and really doing the cost benefit calculus of what is it going to cost me to make this change? And what do I have to gain from making this change? And really thinking that through, which is hard in itself. You know, one of the things that takes work and that we tend to be bad at, that's a skill that needs to be built is just future projection, both in terms of what are going to be the obstacles in my way and how long is it going to take me to turn this into a habit and what kinds of intermediate steps am I going to encounter? How good will it be for me once I accomplish this? If it's something that's far out in the future, you know, and, and how am I going to feel at various points in time? What's called affective forecasting in research psychology. We're, it feels when we're setting resolutions, you know, when we're sitting at our computer and we're typing out, at least thinking of myself, Oh, I am going to run for half an hour every morning. I'll get up an extra hour early so I can run. And at the time, it just sounds like a no-brainer. Clearly, that's you know the thing to do, and it'll make me fit. And I, you know, all my friends do it. And I mean, what do I have to lose? I'm just going to get up an hour early. But we're not imagining how exhausted we're going to feel when the alarm goes off, and how many other things are going to be on our minds and how easy it'll be to put it off and how much we'll beat ourselves up after we've gone a week without making good on our resolution. And so I think to the extent that we don't factor in those costs in advance and really consciously budget for ourselves that, yeah, I, it's gonna be hard, it's gonna be a slog, I'm gonna screw up sometimes and have to get back on the wagon and all these things are worth it to me for the sake of this end goal where, I get to enjoy being in my own skin more, you know, or I get to be fit for my wedding, you know, or whatever the case may be. So, so that's one big reason. Let me see if I'm getting what you're saying right here. It sounds like you're saying two things. One thing is that change is hard because it actually is hard. Uh, but then it's little- even harder. People make it even harder than it needs to be by having an unrealistic view of how easy it is. And yeah. when they when they think it's easier than it actually is, that uh, disappoints their ability to make any changes. They they give up too easily. It becomes a kind of self fulfilling prophecy. Uh, yeah. They 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 think change is impossible because it's hard, and therefore they don't even bother trying. Is, am, am I getting that right? Yeah, 
Exactly. Yeah. And in a way, that's kind of a meta level reason why it's hard, as you point out, you know, that it's hard is a kind of first order fact that we need to grapple with. And there are important reasons for that. And we can also categorize those reasons. Um, but yeah, I wanted to just start with, I think, an often missed nuance in thinking about, well, how hard is it and is it possible, you know, which is what you just summarized. We actually just got a question coming through Zoom uh, asking about the, the higher level issue. Why is it that people think it's easy? What leads hmm. them to think that? And then what can they do to, I guess, correct that? That's a great question. Yeah. So I mean, this opens up a kind of whole theme of underlying beliefs and under premises mindsets that affect our motivation, that affect what possibilities we even consider and whether we're able to you know, stick with our goals. And there's a widespread premise or belief that people hold implicitly or explicitly, you know, wh whether or not they realize it, that either we're good at things or we're not, right? Or that either we're kind of built to be a certain way, accomplish certain things, you know, either we have it in us, right? Or we don't. We're born for greatness or we're born for mediocrity. And it takes lots and lots of different forms. And some of them, I think, subtler than others. And in psychology, there's this literature on growth mindset versus fixed mindset that's kind of getting at this idea, at least from a certain angle. But to the extent that we have this implicit premise or some version of it that tells us either, innate, either we're kind of destined to succeed or we're destined to fail in effect, the idea that it takes work and effort and that we're gonna fail a bunch, like the ways that it's hard to change or really to achieve anything, to grow, they feel aversive to us. They feel like proof of our innate inadequacy, if you will, right? Because, well, if we're struggling, if we're not already gifted at this such that it comes naturally and easily to us, we must not be cut out for it. So that's one major reason I think that people both underestimate the challenge and then you know, give up. Okay. So that's, that's an example of how there are actual beliefs that people have about the possibility of change that either make it harder or easier for them to actually make the change. Um, surely that's not the only thing um, that uh, makes change hard uh, or easy is beliefs about change. There's probably beliefs about other things that do the same thing. So could, could you, let's take a step back and, and talk a little bit more about what makes change possible in fact uh, mm -hmm. whether it's beliefs about change or beliefs about other things. Um, and, and what do beliefs have to do with it generally is another, is another issue. Yes, sure. So what makes it possible? So I think I could answer this question at multiple levels. So I'll maybe try to start somewhere in the middle and we'll see where we go from there. But, but one of the, so, so first of all, I mean, we can think about a few different levels of change. It's obvious at a certain level. Most people have changed their route to work, right? Or most people have changed a habit at some point that just didn't serve them anymore. Most people drink less now than they drank in college, right? There are all kinds of small journalistic changes, if you will, that we make. But that's not really where the controversy is, right? The controversy is over whether we can change deeper, more, more fundamental aspects of ourselves, right? Like, can I go from being a person who is shy and who avoids uncomfortable interactions, avoids conflict, avoids risk, to being 
a courageous risk taker, to being assertive, to standing up for myself, right? Those kinds of changes. Can I go from being someone who's kind of lazy and averse to effort and kind of coast to someone who is really willing to take on a challenge and put you know, my nose to the grindstone, that kind of thing. And when we think about what makes those changes possible, you know, I'm in the business of helping people with those changes. So certainly my bias, but I think also my data tells me it's possible. But what, what we're relying on is our own capacity to reflect on our habits, on our character, on our psychology, our emotions, and project the ways that we want to be different. And to decide for ourselves by our own imagination, by our own kind of rational judgment, when and whether and how it's going to be worth it to us to, to, to in effect, manage and regulate and ultimately build and rebuild ourselves, right? That we are our own programmers. And we can talk a lot more about how that works and what it is about the kind of intellect and the kind of reflective faculty that we have that allows us to do that. But it's really through our own self-awareness and self-reflection and, and willingness to challenge and question ourselves you know, that we're able to imagine a different version. Well, maybe you could give some examples of uh, this idea that we are our own programmers, because I mean, just on the face of it, I, I suspect some people are going to hear that and uh, be a little skeptical. Uh, I mentioned before, some people say, no, no, we're programmed by our genes. Um, and obviously, I, I take it you would agree that there are things about us that are programmed by our genes. And so um, what is it? What are the things that we can program? What are the things we can't? And there's a there's a, a related question we can get to after that about what are the things that are easier and harder to change but maybe we'll start with the, what what do we program first yeah so it, depending on how far we want to zoom out you know we program potentially almost everything in the sense that with enough work and with enough investment of energy and resources we can make all kinds of changes to all kinds of aspects of ourselves so the kind of thing I have in mind, so an example that uh, a colleague of mine uses who's a behavior geneticist who studies, you know, heritability of behavioral and characterological traits. So he studies the things that we inherit from through our genes, right? And, and an example he uses, he talks about this in terms of the canalization of traits that at different times in our development, different traits become quote canalized, meaning that they kind of become our default. And he even talks about, you know, something that canonically we all think of as an unchangeable trait, like height. You know, most people don't work on changing their height and we probably wouldn't recommend it, right, to, to many people because there's not that much you can do and there aren't that many degrees. Of, you know, it's just one of these things that it's luck of the draw. But if you were really into, you know, if for some reason you're passion for basketball or, you know, you, I, I mean, it's hard to even imagine a scenario, but like if you, for some reason, really like had all of your life's kind of work and energy invested in becoming taller, there are things you could do, right? There, there's it's like surgeries that could stretch you out and there's certain kinds of diet and maybe, maybe science. not by very much, but your, your point is a little bit at least. Um, yes, exactly. And who knows, maybe in the future, you know, scientists will discover 
like bone extension you know, mechanisms, but right. So it doesn't mean that we can even do it in our lifetimes. But the point is that it's a problem that we can apply our intellect to trying to solve. It's, it would be a very hard problem to solve. And generally speaking, it's not a particularly fruitful problem to solve because, you know, as long as we fall within a certain range, like we're probably fine and can do, make the most of whatever height, you know, we ended up with, right? But even the fact that you know, heights vary by nutrition and by you know, the countries that are more developed that have, you know, generally kind of higher standards of living on average have taller people, right? So, so that's, you know, taking an example that we think of as at the one extreme of unchangeable, right? Now, as we move along the continuum, if, you will, if, if we think about, you know, being an anxious person, right, which is heritable, All, everything we're going to talk about is heritable. That's one thing that, you know, I've learned from studying behavior genetics and, um, and that aspect of the field that you have a predisposition that some people are more risk averse and more reactive. Some people, it kind of takes more to trigger them or to rile them up, you know, at just at baseline, all else being equal. And that then snowballs depending on how you're raised and the kinds of stressors you encounter in your life, right? And there are lots of things before you're even of the age to be able to kind of self-reflect and really consider, okay, but is this going to serve me in the long run? And what other ways are there of handling stressful situations? You've already built up a whole bunch of habits and a whole bunch of kind of deep implicit beliefs, right? That are going to be really hard to shake up and to challenge if you if you want to. And at the same time, there are lots and lots of tools available to you if you decide that the, the reward is worth the cost. And I think a really, really key point here and a, a kind of fundamental enabler of change is this insight that it's a choice and that there's no intrinsic mandate. You know, there's, we have no kind of intrinsic duty to become you know, more or less courageous than we are, to become more or less effort averse than we are, whatever it may be, except insofar as it serves us somehow. And if we see the reward, if we, if for some reason it's, you know, we want to do the work and it's really magical sometimes when you hear about, you know, people who couldn't quit smoking, they tried a hundred times to quit smoking. And then the day their kid was born or the day that they found out they had an artery blockage, they stopped, they quit cold turkey. No, not necessarily something that you should try at home. (laughs) There are better, easier ways to do it, but it's interesting, right? Like when the motivation suddenly gets switched on and it becomes very, very real to someone, suddenly a lot more change becomes possible. And we actually had someone just submit a question through Zoom asking, what do you think about the belief that a person has to hit bottom to be motivated to change? Now, the example that you just mentioned is not an example of hitting bottom, but I mean, that's another example of where a person's motivation to change uh, becomes clearer. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think that's, yeah, briefly, it's an example of that broader phenomenon. But having the motivation isn't enough, right? You there's there's you've got to have that, and then you've also have you have to have the strategy. So maybe we work with let's let's think of one of the examples that you mentioned before: uh, social anxiety. Somebody who just doesn't uh, like to be. I, I have this problem sometimes, believe it or not. I don't like to be at parties too much, um, but I've gotten better with it, I think. And um, what do you think are strategies that uh, that someone has to exploit if once they recognize they have this problem, once they have motivation 
to solve it, like they realize, no, I, I make my living by by meeting new people, uh, clients or students or uh, uh, colleagues or what have you. Um, once they have that motivation, what are how do they change? How do they get rid of that anxiety? So the first thing is just to recognize that there are so many strategies and tools available and it and the kinds of tools and strategies and the kind of support that you'll need depends on you on the nature of your goal on the nature of the obstacles in your way right and even just like dispositionally how you operate best so obviously you know, i'm a therapist and a coach right among other things and so I'm a kind of resource, right? I use a variety of tools and strategies like cognitive behavioral therapy that involve uh, recognizing for some of the beliefs, like we've been talking about, you know, underlying behaviors that are hard for us to change and developing strategies for pacing ourselves in whether it's you know confronting our fears, starting small or you know, starting with like a bite-sized test case or test interaction that's fairly low stakes, but still gets us revved up and anxious and then seeing how that goes and kind of teaching ourselves through experience over time that we can handle it and then working our way to more challenging encounters, right? Or, or just learning how to break down our goals into more concrete, feasible bite-sized chunks and building in rewards to help ourselves stay cognizant of what's in it for us and to stay motivated over the long haul when there's a lot of interference that can kind of occlude the clarity of our vision uh, on what we want. Um, and then there's lots of self-help material out there. You know, there's so many books written. There's books on habit and mindset and getting things done. And in a way, it's almost there's such an abundance of tools that I couldn't possibly, you know, summarize them all other than to maybe note some of the underlying categories of it depends you know, of kind of how deep a change do you need to make right and if you need to make a change that's kind of journalistic where you can already basically see the benefit in it and you know the kind of the the vision you know the end goal it aligns with the way that you already live your life and your values you know it basically it kind of it, it falls into place given the kind of person you already are and you just need some help executing and then there's a ton of tools at that level, like goal setting and implementation intentions, lots of helpful things. And well, let's, let's, maybe we'll talk about one of the tools that helps with the, the bigger changes, the, the changes yeah. of more uh, deeply entrenched characteristics, because those are the kinds that people think people can't really change. And that's, and where, so, that's where I do my work. So. Like with the social anxiety, for instance, you mentioned something about uh, a person's beliefs can sometimes be responsible for that kind of anxiety. Now, when I think about social anxiety, I think, you know, most people who have it probably think it's bad that I have this social anxiety. It disrupts my functioning. So they don't think it's, they don't believe that it's a good thing that they have. Um, what beliefs do they have uh, that are still getting them stuck in these kinds of problems? Yep. Yeah. So some common beliefs of, let's start with social anxiety, might as well, and then we'll zoom out and see how there's some common patterns. Sure. But people who struggle with social anxiety typically have beliefs that they may or may not even be aware of, or they may have already disowned, but those beliefs are still lurking in their psychology and still pulling at them and causing emotions that, that make it hard for them to act. You know, beliefs 
along the lines of, I am going to create a certain impression on people and that will be devastating. So whether that's, I will embarrass myself or I will make them think that I am stupid or that I'm not worth you know, the trouble to be friends with or to invest in or you know, whatever it is you care about right, in your interactions with other people, I'm going to, in spite of myself, somehow I'm going to slip up, I'm going to stammer, I'm going to blush, I'm going to not know something. And because of some unpredictable, uncontrollable flaw, I will be rejected, denounced, and given up on. And so there's this belief, and it can vary in its uh, generality and in its depth and intensity, you know, whether you believe this at a level that generalizes across all the people in your life or only people you don't know well, or, you know, only in context where you're not as confident, or if it's like a deeper, more, we might say metaphysical, more global belief that this is a world in which I will never be given a chance, a world in which I can't operate, whether because of the way people are, you know, people by and large are irrational, they don't give second chances, they are intolerant, whatever the case may be, and or because of ways that I am. You know, I am just too inarticulate, I am incompetent, whatever it may be, such that people aren't gonna want to engage with me. That's just an example, uh, some flavor for kind of the variety of ways that that basic theme can manifest in social anxiety. It's interesting that uh, you've got both beliefs about yourself and beliefs about the world in there. And if, if the beliefs that are at the root of this problem are as general as that, you would think then that somebody with that kind of problem, say social anxiety problem, stemming from beliefs like that, it's not just going to be confined to their uh, to social situations. There's, there's going to be other manifestations in the rest of their life. Is that the kind of thing that you see? Do you see patterns across areas of a person's life where the same kind of beliefs are manifesting? Yes, and it varies. So you, you would think you might assume out of hand that if someone has the set of beliefs with respect to other people and dealing with others, they're gonna have it with respect to getting things done and with respect to being able to thrive you know, and other things. And many do, maybe half or more than half of people who have diagnosable social anxiety, let's say, which is a semi-arbitrary label anyway, right? Because you could really very widely and just like how severe it is. But also there's definitely variation in how global it is. There are definitely also people for whom it's more delimited and more specific. But as often or more often than not, what you're saying you know, has, has merit, that, that it's going to also bleed into other parts of one's life. Well, another issue I wanted to follow up about um, is, is this, is change, is it enough to change your beliefs? Because I can think of people who, let's say, not only recognize that they have a problem, but who maybe even after having gone through some therapy will have identified some of these kinds of core beliefs, both about themselves and about the world, and will have consciously recognized they have them and think this is wrong. Why do I, why do I think this? 
Uh, it doesn't make sense to think that I'm never going to be able to succeed. It doesn't make sense to think the world's out to get me. And yet, uh, they they still find themselves returning to sort of uh, automatic thoughts and and feelings that uh, still seem to push them in that same direction. And so there's a bigger question here about what does it take to change the feelings that you need to be able to change in order to change a character trait like this? Great question. I mean, and this is where we come back to the programming metaphor and to the question we started with, which is why is change so hard? And why don't people always appreciate how hard it is? Our psychologies have a complex nature, right? And there's biology and there's you know, complex interactions between psychology and biology and between thinking and feeling and you know, physiological reactivity involved. And just knowing on some detached, rational, intellectual level, I ought to be more social, I ought to be you know, I ought to exercise more, whatever the case may be, assuming we even actually, you know, if that that's based on a real considered judgment that is anchored to our values, which it often isn't, right? Often there's a lack of clarity about what is actually in this for me. And so I think that's one of the major places where work has to happen is actually getting clear on the motivation and really doing our own work of choosing for ourselves based on our own context and our own priorities rather than taking in some common dictate that oh you know thou shalt be fit thou shalt be social or whatever it may be so that's you know but then even having fully kind of committed to that at, at an intellectual level we still have this whole stack right of mind body connections of, of programs that aren't just magically going to catch up <laughs> to that to that intellectual identification. And it takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of skill. And there's a whole science of behavior change that is still in its infancy that is devoted to answering that question of how do we change ourselves actually in terms of the underlying kind of mechanics of having a belief steep in and really go all the way down. And where does the old belief go? Is it always there just kind of waiting to surface again? Or do we actually erase it and obliterate it from our memory? Looks like that never happens, just based on a lot of the research and like memory reconsolidation and, and retrieval. People don't ever really seem to completely obliterate their old habits. That includes both thinking habits and you know action habits. They weaken their associations and their pulls, and they replace the or, or they kind of build new beliefs and habits on top of them. But that doesn't mean that the sediment of that you know old belief or old habit just goes away. And it finds a way to insert itself in our lives where we least expect it. You know, and we we're really vigilant and we practice and we you know journal and we go to a therapist and we work on it and it crops up in some totally different way than we had even anticipated. And now suddenly we realize, wait, I'm in that same pattern again where I'm letting someone walk all over me, you know, or whatever the case may be. So this is interesting because we had earlier talked about how it's first of all, important to have motivation to change. And now if I get you correctly, you're saying the nature of your motivation is also important to the mechanics of the change, because if there's a belief uh, of some kind, a false belief that's, that's entrenching some habit of yours, 
it's not enough to consciously reject that belief for any old reason. You're saying you also have to reject it for the right reason, a, a, a reason that connects to your actual motivation for changing in the first place. Is that is that yeah. part of what you're saying here? Huge part of what I'm saying. And, and that's not just a like a preliminary step. It's ongoing and it kind of penetrates the whole self-change process because those beliefs we're talking about that are sediments of old beliefs that are still going to push on us and are still going to create inertia and that we're going to have to resist in different ways require ongoing motivation to push back on, right? That we can never fully you know, rest on our laurels, so to speak, especially if something isn't initially our second nature and we're really trying to, uh, to kind of push ourselves forward in a direction that wasn't always going to be our default. So it's not enough, for instance, if you're suffering from social anxiety to tell yourself, I shouldn't care what other people think of me and whether I make mistakes or not because I'm a heroic individual who doesn't care about what other people think, where you think that because that's what your philosophy tells you or something like that. And you're saying, no, it, it can't just come from a, a philosophy you've picked up off the shelf. You have, to, you have to really connect it to what you as an individual want out of life. In an ongoing way. Yeah, you've got to be constantly gathering new evidence and kind of making new choices about, okay, but what about in this context? And is this person worth dealing with and interacting with? And, you know, is this effort worth putting in? And kind of seeing through your own eyes in each new case that it's or whether it's worth it to you and what is the nature of the work involved. And people don't, it's really hard to even just understand that that's the process. It sounds like this relates to the quotation that you wanted to discuss uh, yeah. from, from Ayn Rand, the one from Causality versus Duty. Is this a good time to sure. talk about I mean, that? I think we, we, it was going to be uh, a piggyback um, uh, counterweight to another quote, but I think, yeah, we might as well feature okay. it. On center. So let's put this up here and turn your camera off for just a second. I'll read this. Um, and this is from her essay, Causality versus Duty, which appears in Philosophy Who Needs It. And she's talking about um, people who think about, who act on the basis of perceived duties without a connection to personal motivation. She says, if a rational man becomes discouraged by difficulties, he reminds himself of, that, of the goal that requires them, knowing that he is fully free to reconsider, to ask, is it worth it? And that no punishment is involved except the renunciation of the value he desires. One seldom gives up in such cases unless one finds that it is rationally necessary. In similar circumstances, someone on a duty premise who doesn't have that connection to the value that they desire does not focus on his goal, but on his own moral character. His automatic reaction is guilt and fear, fear of failing his duty, fear of some weakness which duty forbids, fear of proving himself morally unworthy. The value of his goal vanishes from his mind drowned in a flood of self-doubt. He may drive himself on in this cheerless fashion for a while, but not for long. Such a person seldom carries out or undertakes important goals. They are a threat to his self-esteem. Now, uh, Gina, you pointed this out to me just yesterday, and um, I, I had never actually noticed that quote or uh, in causality versus duty as having the kind of significance for psychological change as as you you pointed out so um maybe you could say a little bit more about what you appreciate about that and how you've seen it in action yeah i've appreciated that, absolutely that essay and especially 
you know, that excerpt. And if you like it, I've appreciated them more and more the longer I've practiced and both worked on myself and my own psychological growth and change and worked with a wide range of people who have various kinds of challenges and goals and problems. And the number of times that this basically ends up being the fundamental descriptor is really staggering. And so I've just really come to appreciate how visionary and psychologically insightful this characterization is of the kind of the two mindsets that you could be on. And so, yeah, so this speaks to a difference in more fundamental than we talked about growth mindset before, right? So there's this kind of one level at which you could generically kind of believe that in terms of a kind of causal theory of where ability or virtue comes from, that it's innate, you know, and that can really mess with you when it comes to being motivated forever. But this is a question of like, where, what is your standard of worth, right? And therefore, it, in fact, the fundamental source of your motivation, like where does your motivation come from? And the challenge here is that that itself is a learned, habitualized premise, a belief, right? It's like part of the architecture of our psychology and it forms very early. And I've met maybe a handful of people who like fully escaped it, so to speak, you know, whether because of awesome upbringing or, you know, some interaction of like brilliant minds and good choices and easy temperaments, who knows, but most people I've encountered, at least ambitious people who have a sense of, you know, idealism, who aspire to live a great life, they have some version of this in their heads. Mm. And, what it does is it creates this constant interject, this constant kind of tension, this middleman, in effect, a, a, a mental middleman between ourselves and the things we want, where there's something we have to prove and there's some authority to which we need to prove it in order to be allowed, in effect, in order to have the kind of sanction, the permission, in order to be worthy of actually living our life and doing the things that we want. And so then when we commit to some New Year's resolutions, you know, those become duties, but even if they're perfectly reasonable and we actually have good reason to want them at the time, right? The kinds of things that we've been talking about, but as soon as we've now given them the stamp of, okay, these are now standards I'm trying to live up to, right? These are now metrics by which I'm gonna be comparing, kind of engaging my worth. Now they take on this new character in our minds where they are bearing down on us and they're causing us to constantly be afraid and be gu and feel guilty if we're not living up to them. But also it feels like a drudgerous duty to try to live up to them because it's not really for us now. It's for that, you know, guilting parent or priest or critic or whoever that's living in our heads, literally or not, usually not literally at all at that point, right? It's just ourselves, but it's like that part of ourselves that is the, the enforcer. Uh, and it just kills motivation. In, a, in all the kinds of ways she brilliantly describes. And we can notice this about ourselves. We can practice shifting to a new mindset, to being like causally driven, you know, being selfish in the sense that, you know, Rand meant it, right? Where there's nobody but us who has to put in these efforts and who gets to make these choices. And it's only our life and our happiness that's at stake. But it's hard and it takes time and practice. And this like is just gonna keep coming back, you know, for years and years as we're practicing it. Well, one of the things you just said uh makes it sound like change is even harder than you might have expected because there can be changes that we try to make, which 
there actually could be a good personal motivation for making. It just doesn't happen to be the one that we have. So you, you yeah. mentioned, you know, having this kind of duty to prove to some authority that you're a good person, like, let's say by, uh, you know, getting healthier. Um, and in fact, getting healthier might actually be a good thing for you, but that's not what's moving you to do it. And if the wrong thing is moving you again, it's going to make it impossible to do. So this, this raises the question then of like, how can you tell uh, when a change is actually worth trying to make? In part, it sounds like it's going to depend on figuring out what your actual motivation is. Uh, and how do you tell what your actual motivation is when it's kind of overdetermined by a number of different possible factors? No, absolutely. I mean, there, so there's a whole technology of self-reflection and self-monitoring that partly you know, that I've gotten from cognitive behavioral therapy and from other therapeutic approaches that I've been developing to also incorporate this insight, this perspective. But to put it very briefly, to kind of summarize, you learn to notice certain signals. So, so your question is in a couple parts, right? There's the part, there's the, how do you decide if it's worth it? Just from like a budgeting perspective, again, right? It, it does the value outweigh the cost? You know, the kind of dictate that Rand suggests as a replacement for, for duty and for all of these you know, kind of artificial externally imposed standards is take what you want and pay for it, right? Do I want this enough and how much is it going to cost me? And do I want it enough that it's worth that cost? And there's a bunch that goes into that. Again, figuring out, well, what is it going to involve and how much time will it take? And what else could I be doing? Like, what's the opportunity cost? If I'm subscribing to a gym membership and getting myself to, you know, getting myself out of bed an hour early and all this, like, what am I not going to be working on? I see somebody in the chat ask, is it possible that we're making too many changes at once? For sure. You know, like that's a type of, a problem that people sometimes encounter where they're kind of over ambitious in the sense that they like maybe underestimate the cost and the you know the effort involved and so they try to change everything at once and no none of the changes end up happening you know they end up just kind of regressing back to square one because they didn't quite do the budgeting right right so so there's that end of it there's just like doing the budgeting right like what is this going to cost me what else are my you know, what am I giving up in order to work on this? How long is it, et cetera? Right. And then there's the meta question of these conflicting sources of motivation. There's kind of the watching for that like invader of you know duty and and guilt in yourself, which can show up at any time and hijack your goals in effect. So that now you're no longer connected to your purpose and to that cost-benefit analysis that made you want to do it. Instead, you're like answering to some inner judiciary, right? Or to some inner um, critic. And there are lots of ways to watch for that and to catch it and to disengage from it, to shift into a different mindset. And that's where I work on, uh, work with people in lots of different ways, like noticing is how is, how are you talking to yourself right now? Like, are you using you know, the, the tone and the language of, oh, you stupid jerk, what is wrong with you? You're lazy, you're good for it. Or on the other hand, like the kind of self-indulgent child who's like trying to get away with something, which is the flip side of having this mindset, right? Mm -hmm. You can't live up to these duties and these arbitrary you know, standards anyway. Nobody can, it's impossible. And so you end up 
trying to get away that you end up having deficits in your self-esteem and your self-respect. And you kind of start to compromise and you start to lie to yourself and you start to make excuses, just like, you know, a child who has an overbearing, guilting parent, right? And so you might notice yourself kind of thinking in terms of like, ah, it's fine, I'll do it tomorrow, or, you know, making promises you can't keep, or kind of just flipping back and forth between those kinds of modes where you're like the petulant child trying to get away with something, and or you're the guilting, demeaning, punishing you know, parent or critic who isn't on your side. And then really identifying like, what does it sound like when I'm actually my own advocate, when I'm actually in the driver's seat of my life and when it's really just for me and by me, like how do I talk to myself then? And like consciously practicing that. It's, it's super interesting that you could you could get clues from not just the kind of, content of the reasons that you're giving to yourself but the their sort of their form of presentation the voice that they're coming in are they coming from the overbearing parent in you or are they coming from the adult in you or are they coming from the child in you and you, the, the the sweet spot is in between and and as if it's the child it's rebelling against the parent uh, it's it's a really interesting perspective um and i wouldn't even just to quickly you know it, it's common to think of it as in between you know, where there's this dichotomy of, well, you know, you've got these two extremes. So just be in the middle, like, don't be too mean and don't be too nice. But I don't think that really, you know, characterizes because this is not a single continuum that you could have like, well, I could be more anti-me or less anti-me. So maybe I'll be just a little anti-me, right? Like just in principle, why would you be anti-you, right? We're talking like, about getting off the scale entirely. Yeah. It's just a totally different approach and totally different standard where, no, it's my life. And I'm the only one I ultimately have to answer to, you know, and so like, what do I care about? And what am I going to get from this? And what am I willing to put in? And that's it. Well, I think we should start to transition to questions. And so I'll just remind people who are watching, if you haven't already to, if you're on Zoom, plug in a question in the Q&A module. Uh, if you're on Super Chat, I'm still monitoring there to see if anybody on YouTube would like to answer, uh, ask a Super Chat question. Um, before we get to those, Gina, I thought maybe we would go back to that other quotation just to sort of sum things up. Um, since you talked uh, at a number of times about how you think in principle, everything about who we are as a person is programmable, I thought I would share this passage uh, from Ayn Rand that's making a similar kind of point. Um, and go ahead and turn your camera off for just a moment for this. This is, of course, from Atlas Shrugged, where she talks about the self-made soul. She says, if any achievements open to you, the one that makes all others possible is the creation of your own character. Your character, your actions, your desires, your emotions are the products of the premises held by your mind. As a man must produce the physical values he needs to sustain his life, so he must acquire the values of character that make his life worth sustaining. As a man is a being of self-made wealth, so he is a being of self-made soul. To live requires a sense of self-value, but man who has no automatic values has no automatic sense of self-esteem and must earn it by shaping his soul in the image of his moral ideal. So Gina, there's a number of things in that passage that we touched on today. There's the role of uh, underlying premises in changing other aspects of your character and your feelings and your actions. There's the role of the ideals that you hold uh, in making that change possible, which I think connects to the issues about motivation 
um, and the, having the right motivation as being necessary to make the effective change. Was there anything else in there that you wanted to, to, to comment on as it relates to our conversation today? I think you've summarized it nicely and I, I wanna give our uh, questioners uh, maximum opportunity, so. Great, um, so we've got a few different things that have come in. Um, in. On Facebook, we got a question asking if you would discuss your views on the relevance and or importance of heritability estimates on someone's self-made soul. I think this is something that came up in one of your academic papers, actually. Maybe you want to elaborate on that. Yes, so I'm happy to refer you to a paper I wrote on that topic called <laughs> Nurturing Our Better Nature. I think Ben, you'll- um, I'll, give the, I'll give the citation for that later, yeah. yeah. So, but in terms of the benefit, I mean, it depends on the what for, like everything. You know, I think there's a lot that's really interesting about the study and the measurement of heritability depends who you are and what you want to do with that information. You know, there's all kinds of interventions that are informed by estimates of heritability to the extent that it's a kind of really rough indirect index of malleability of that issue we talked about of like how hard or easy is it going to be to change something at a given point in time or in a given environment or under given circumstances where people, you know, just in the medical realm, people target certain diseases at certain stages in life because, you know, those diseases become more heritable over time. And so they want to intervene early. And that, that's just one of a million possible examples of the value of knowing um, those estimates. But also, I think part of the value is in realizing what we can't predict from genetic you know, and realizing kind of the constraints and the limits on the kind of genetic determinism that people look for and that some people are, you know, have a preconceived notion about that heritability doesn't explain everything. In a way, it doesn't explain anything. Yeah, you know, when you really understand what it's estimating and like go on a big tangent about it, but I won't unless someone's, if someone wants to follow up, but you know, the kind of extent to which you're more similar if you're an identical twin versus a fraternal twin on a given trait at a given time in a given sample, turns out that that estimate can widely vary depending on how rich or poor your family is and what neighborhood or what country you live in and how old you are and what, how motivated you are for school. Like alcoholism is less heritable in kids who are more academically motivated, right? So heritability is just so far from being fate, right? And I think we actually can learn about how far it is from being fate by understanding what it's telling us. So I'll stop there. Is, is, am I correct that technically when, when psychologists use the term heritability, it doesn't just refer to genetics, it also refers to things you might inherit through your upbringing uh, from your parents, that it's, it's a combination of both. Right. Yeah, it includes the study of environmental uh, predictors so because heritability is computed kind of relative to the shared, the kind of common environment, shared environment, as well as then what's left over, which is referred to as the unshared environment. You know, so, so it parses the predictive kind of variance into what's explained, explained or kind of accounted for by genes, what's accounted for by the environment, and what's unaccounted for by either. So in that sense, you get information about both. So related to environment and parents, there was a question in the chat in Zoom, someone asked, can parents encourage changes in their children? If so, how well does that translate to managing our own lives? I certainly believe that parents can have all kinds of 
influences, you know, positive or negative, but hopefully positive ones on their children as much as, you know, educators can have an influence on their students and mentors can have an influence um, insofar as we provide experiences and provide or withhold, you know, opportunities to learn certain things about the world and to learn and to develop certain of our own capacities. You know, you, you know and some on the call may know that my husband, Matt, works um, with a company called Higher Ground Education, which has as its you know, mission to transform not only education, but increasingly also like our culture's approach to parenting, as they see those as being very closely you know, inter, uh, intertwined. And so there's lots and lots to be said about the different ways that you could approach a child's upbringing and education. And to the second question, I actually often find myself using the metaphor. You know, I was just talking about, are you the child who's in trouble? Are you the overbearing parent? It turns out there are tons of parallels. It, if we just think in terms of like, what kind of parent do I want to be to myself? Huh. How do I want to solve, you know, do I want to be loving but firm? Do I want to be permissive and just like let that part of me just like run around and get into trouble and, you know, throw myself into a fire? Or do I want to be overbearing and mean and, you know, and cold? Like what kind of parent do I want to be to myself? And, and often just asking that question, especially if, you know, if you're oriented toward being a good parent to your kids, I mean, there's even a whole psychological literature on the kind of different approaches to parenting that falls into this same triad, that you could be permissive, that doesn't lead to great outcomes. You could be authoritarian, also, you know, not surprisingly, doesn't lead to great outcomes. Or you could be authoritative, which is like high warmth and high structure and high autonomy, ultimately. The same approach that I think we could all use, you know, with ourselves. Really interesting. Really interesting. Um, we've, we've also gotten some uh, more practically oriented questions for uh, about recommendations. Uh, a super chat question came in with a donation. Thank you for that. Asking about if there are any virtual therapy apps that you would recommend. Another question from Zoom asking if there are any books that you recommend to help with change. So I guess uh, further leads both uh, uh, via the internet or by books that you could suggest here. Yeah, I mean, again, this is my limitation here is that there are just too many to even know kind of where to start. So, I, you know, if I know more about the particular nature of, you know, if it's that you want to change certain like psychological habits or manage anxiety, there's a bunch of good books on, you know, like cognitive therapy or cognitive behavioral therapy, um, like everything from kind of standard, like feeling good by David Burns and Mind Over Mood and other books, books by Aaron Beck himself, who is the founder of CBT, but also more recent books that build upon CBT in really valuable ways, like um, books on acceptance and commitment therapy, which is really mixed and has a lot of, uh, I have a lot of philosophical differences with ACT as with many approaches, but really, really valuable tools and kind of therapeutic advice if you as with anything, if you kind of approach it judiciously and use your own judgment about kind of what you take and what you leave. I, as you know, Ben, um, I'm a big proponent of much of the technology of mindfulness. And um, so there are actually apps that I've used and that I find are really helpful. Like, and there's you know, hundreds of them, but people are generally familiar with Headspace. It's really nice, but after a while it charges you. There are free ones that are also really good. Like what's called the Mindfulness Coach, um, which was developed by the 
Veterans Administration and is free and kind of like very matter of fact and straightforward, which people like. I could go on and on, but that's just maybe scraping the surface a little bit. Well, maybe that's a good place to to finish things up. Uh, could you say a little bit more about what this concept of mindfulness is? What utility you see in it, especially as bears on some of the issues about personal change that we've talked about today. I'm sure. This is a, a much discussed uh, topic these days in, in therapeutic circles. Yes. So I guess just to provide really brief context, I don't know who's familiar with what aspects of this mindfulness refers to a broad umbrella of exercises and techniques and treatment methods that in, that broadly that, that were originally kind of inspired by Eastern meditation practices and um, and things like that but that have been transformed and westernized in a way that's both been amenable to scientific study where now people have been put in brain scanners while meditating and after meditating and differences were you know have been observed in like naive kind of beginning meditators versus more and so on and so on. But also that I think, again, while being kind of muddy and mixed conceptually in ways that I would be judicious about, I think it captures some really core insights that we can really learn from. Like that you control your attention, that you don't directly control in the sense of being able to like turn on and off your emotions, that you know, thoughts come and go from your mind and are part of the kind of milieu of your, you know, of, of your psychology and that trying to kind of doctor them and suppress them is often worse than just letting them be, you know, but fundamentally that you control your attention and by controlling your attention, you can control your life because you know, what you're able to do is you're able to kind of come back to the present moment, oh, expand your awareness around some of those things that you've been trying to like learn and remember, but that can escape when you're stressed and pause and think and reflect and make conscious choices about how you wanna go forward. And so to that extent, whatever type of practice you, know, you might favor, and there's a wide, wide variety, formal, informal, I think the fundamental utility in it is that it helps you to practice being intentional with your mind which I think is key to everything else we've been talking about. Very good. Thank you. That, 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 that's helpful. Um, there was another question that came in on Super Chat that I'm afraid we're not going to get a chance to uh, have time to answer about uh, improving your working memory. I'm not sure if that's quite on the topic that we're discussing, but maybe uh, the person who asked it, if, if uh, they want to find out more, can get in touch with Dr. Gorlin uh, to find out more about that. Um, so let me let me start to wrap us up by sharing some resources that people can take a look at if they if they'd like to learn more about some of the issues we've talked about today. So, for starters, uh, and Jeannie you might want to turn your camera off for this so that people can see the names of your articles. Uh, we have uh, a popular article that uh, Dr. Gorlin wrote just a few months ago for Psychology Today magazine called What It Really Looks Like to Rebuild Your Soul, which I, I, I found a very useful, interesting article summarizing some of the themes we've talked about today. Uh, she draws from her own personal experience of personal change, which you may find interesting. Um, and I created a short link for that. If you go to bit.ly slash rebuild soul, that'll take you straight to 
the Psychology Today article. If you'd like to dig into some of the details of the things that we've talked about today, uh, there's an academic paper that Dr. Gorlin uh, wrote with uh, Rainier Schur called Nurturing Our Better Nature, a proposal to, uh, for cognitive integrity as a foundation for autonomous living. Now you have to have access to academic journals to find this one, but if you Google for that title, you might be able to find it in a resource you have access to. It's published in the journal Behavior Genetics in August, 2018. You can also get it for free on my website legally. Oh, great. Yeah, if you go to jeanegorland.com, excellent. Um, we, some of the philosophical issues that we talked about today, we read uh, some passages, both from Atlas Shrugged, the passage about uh, self-made soul, also uh, from Causality versus Duty. That essay by Ayn Rand is in her book, Philosophy Who Needs It. I'll also refer you, if you'd like to learn more about Ayn Rand's view of the self-made soul to an essay by my colleague, Ankar Gatte. Uh, there's a chapter in the Companion to Ayn Rand edited by Alan Godhelf and Gregory Salmeri. Uh, called a being of self-made soul, which really digs deep into this idea and collects together uh, lots of passages from disparate parts of Ayn Rand's uh, nonfiction works, uh, showing all the different aspects of the human character that she thinks are up to us, whether it's our, uh, our immediate thinking, our view of ourself, our view of the world, uh, and our uh, approach to uh, cognitive methodology definitely recommend taking a look at Dr. Gatte's essay. And last of all, this didn't come up so much today, but we have been brushing up against the issue of human free will in saying that we have control over our thinking and our lives. Um, for those of you who'd like to understand more about the philosophy of this and how it relates to the scientific questions about uh, human choice, I'd recommend my own essay uh, for New Ideal. Uh, this is called Why Champions of Science and Reason Need Free Will. You can go to, you can find that at bit.ly slash champions hyphen free will. And if you have questions about uh, issues that have come up today, please send us an email at newideal at einrand.org. We answer many of the questions we get. We take your suggestions for future episodes. Um, and uh, also just, like to thank, uh, thank you, Gina. Thank you, Dr. Gorlin, for uh, taking the time to come and talk with us about these really important issues uh, about uh, psychology and change, uh, more relevant than ever at a time when uh, there's a new year upon us and there's all kinds of good reasons for many of us to be thinking about ways to yeah. improve our lives. Yeah, my pleasure. And thank you so much for having me. This is really fun and happy new year. Yeah, so let's let's end on that note. Um, I'll just say uh, this is our last episode of the year. We will be back next week, but uh, that'll be in a new year. So happy new year to everybody in our audience. Thank you for following us. Thank you for supporting us and uh, wishing you the best and looking to see more in the next year. Bye-bye. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.